Hello and welcome to the official College of Policing podcast. My name is Rob Flanagan and every episode I'll be joined by frontline officers and experts to discuss the issues affecting policing in England and Wales today. The pressures of policing COVID-19 has been felt none more so by those on the front line. Police officers and staff have had to adjust very quickly to the changing landscape out on the streets. And this has been far from easy for them. I wanted to speak to somebody who has been working in a usually very busy community to get a sense of what life has been like policing since lockdown was first announced. Riz Dala is a PC working in Blackpool. This vibrant UK tourist destination isn't just about the tower, the amusement arcades and its famous roller coaster. Even before COVID-19, the town has its fair share of challenges from homelessness, substance misuse, unemployment and poverty. So Riz, welcome and thank you for joining me. How long have you been a police officer and have you always worked in Lancashire? Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I started my policing career quite late in life. It was 2015. I spent three and a bit years with the Met in London and then I transferred to Lancashire in March 2018. I worked for a little while in Preston and then the opportunity arose to go to Blackpool. So I joined Blackpool in September of 2019 it was. So long ago now when we talk about going into that first lockdown in March 2020, tell me how was that for you as a cop? when that first announcement was made? I remember exactly where I was. We'd come back to the station to grab some food and we were having our refs and the announcement was made. I remember thinking, this is going to be really challenging. It's going to be quite difficult. Be something we've never dealt with before. Our lives are literally going to change overnight. Everything's going to shut. Our day to day, you know, what we do day to day is going to change. And what were the first things you started to consider about how you police, how did you start to see a difference in dealing with what would have previously been everyday policing tasks? We had to make changes, small things to stop contamination. Like for myself personally, I hoarded loads of uniform. The uniform stores people must have thought, well, what's he doing? Is he hoarding it? Just so at the end of the shift, I could shower at work, de-kit. I'd put my things in a bag and take them home and wash them. And obviously I ordered the extra kit so I had you know fresh clothes to wear the next day. It was really odd getting close to people. Normally we'd just go and engage. We would get up close if we had to get hands on and going into people's houses, it was, it was really strange feeling. Our comms operators were really good because they started doing a COVID checklist. So they'd ask people at every call, especially if we're deploying, have you got any symptoms? Has anybody in your family got symptoms? Have you been exposed to it? So that was good. That gave us a bit of a reassurance, but it was all about taking a real cautious approach when you speak to people and when you deal with people you know, keeping your distance, really only deploying to jobs if we had to. So that was really strange. Whereas before, you're almost at mercy to the radio and you just go here, there and everywhere. And what about you and, you know, your family life? How did you feel about going into work, entering into this environment every day while everyone else was under strict instructions to stay indoors? How did that impact you personally? Again, it was very challenging. I come from an Asian family. I was identified as being as an at-risk group. So I had to be really careful. It was painful really because we've got a real big family, extended family. So it was really sad to not be able to get together and, and do things because as a family, we'd get together regularly. 
you know, I love seeing my cousins and aunts and I'm quite close to them. So that was sad that we, we couldn't do that and you couldn't give them a hug. A couple of my cousins had had babies as well. You know, my dad hated it the most because he loves kids, you know, and all my cousins have been brought up by our elders. Hence why, again, being at risk, I wanted to take that extra precaution, taking those small steps to do things for myself and everybody had to do their bit. Fortunately, I never got it. I had a couple of tests they'd always come back negative. So I think that by taking those small steps, I kind of protected myself and my loved ones and my colleagues around me as well. And did you have people in the team who got COVID? Yeah, bless them. There was a few of them that had to um, self-isolate multiple times. So I was really, really fortunate. We felt it on team when people had to isolate, you know, so numbers were low, um, but we just all pulled together and did our best to get through. And what about dealing with those jobs you talk about how it impacted you personally and, you know, being in that at-risk group. So when you were actually having to deal with a member of the public, and let's say you were going to somebody's house, were there any extra steps that you had to take personally to make sure that you were both being safe yourself and also protecting the public? It was really important that before we went to jobs, we all had the correct PPE. And before you know it, you know, we had masks and sanitizers and you know, aprons and goggles and everything. I remember going to a concern for welfare and there was a poor chap who was really poorly, bless him. And I found him in the cemetery in Leighton and he'd tested positive and I was keeping my distance and I had my big goggles on and my, my apron flapping in the wind. And it was just really strange because usually you'd get up close to them and, you know, you, you'd be there for them and support them, but I wasn't able to. So it was a real strange experience, you know, policing at a distance almost. And did that impact on things you were doing in around the station as well? I know from my days of working in policing, there'd be things like training days. Were you all congregating still in the police station on those types of days? Usually we'd all get together and we'd have training days in a room somewhere. That changed the introduction of Microsoft Teams and Zoom, which changed the way I think every organisation will have meetings. You know, that, that, that was different. We were able to do it from home in the comfort of our home. We still paraded on together as a group. We'd have to keep our distance. We'd change from the parade room into the the camp, into the foyer where there was more space. We'd all socially distance. We all had masks. Even when we came in for a break and refs, you know, we had to sit separately and it, it just wasn't the same. What type of jobs were you going to? What was a typical day policing Blackpool in lockdown like? A lot of COVID breaches would come in. We'd get a lot of calls saying people are having parties or there's noise coming from this flat or this house. So we'd go out to a lot of calls like that. And again, those put us at risk because we're having to go into people's houses and police these restrictions. So it was really difficult around the rules and you can't really deal with something like that over the phone. They changed the way we dealt with certain logs that come in. Your low level, low risk sort of calls we could do over the phone. So that was really good because that again limited the contact between the public and ourselves they limited the amount of people that came into the station to report things. They started using online because I remember specifically, especially for COVID breaches, instead of ringing us up or approaching us, they would do it online. So that was quite good. I know a lot of forces do have an online recording system, so that might be something that they can take forward for the future. And then there are the normal types of jobs that you would have been going to. How was it policing those types of incidents during lockdown? We'd go to calls where, you know, somebody's called in saying the partner's getting aggressive or there's a familial argument. And usually we'd go there and we'd take positive action. We'd separate the parties. You know, we'd ask one if they could go elsewhere usually. But because of the restrictions and and, and because of the lockdown, it wasn't 
normal practice sass them to go and live with somebody else or go to somebody else's house and you don't want them roaming the streets either so you know our hands were very much tied as to what you could do really so we really had to use our discretion or you know we would have to possibly consider other options you know like arrest for example just to safeguard everybody really i remember going to a call with um, a young lad in a care home he wanted to go out and this was during the first lockdown and his care staff were refusing to say look you can't go out you can't go out and he's ended up assaulting, you know, the, the, the carers at the care home and I end up arresting him because mm. I couldn't leave him there because if I left him there, I put the staff at risk of, of assault again. If they end up assaulting him, you know, he might walk out and he'll become a, a missing person and he'll put himself at risk. He'll be putting the other kids in the home at risk. He'll be putting the staff at risk if he gets the infection. So sometimes where normally we wouldn't look at arresting people or taking excessive action you know we, we would but we'd have no other option but to do it just to safeguard everybody so it put us in a really difficult position really so i imagine on top of the challenge of making the right decisions because of covid you've also got these covid regulations that have come in the ones that arrived in quite quick time that said you as police officers now have to take action if you see x y or z just tell me what was your experience of those new regulations? I think people will forget that we didn't have any foresight of this. We weren't told that in two weeks' time, these are the regulations that are going to come into play. It was literally overnight, if I recall. And they were so confusing and complicated. We learned of them quite quickly and we had to take time to read them and understand them before we enforced them. We would turn up to jobs where there were blatant breaches and we had to almost kind of double check, take a step back and think about whether, you know, we can find this person, what action we can take. There's people who were genuinely, genuinely trying to understand it for themselves as well. And it was difficult. So it was a bit of sharing and a bit of understanding as to people's circumstances. And we were going to jobs and they were saying, oh, well, I thought you could do this. I thought you could do that. And then I was second guessing myself because I was like, oh, can you, can you not? I kept going back and finding myself having to check the rules that, the College of Policing were really good because they, they sent out a PowerPoint presentation and it was about 30 odd pages long, but it had everything in there, you know, you, you could find it all. So I remember keeping that on my phone and, and recommending that my colleagues have it as well. So that made it easier. I found it really helpful because it kind of broke it down in bite-sized chunks for me. So, you know, I was really grateful for that. I'll put my hand on my heart and admit that at first I didn't realise what you could do, what you couldn't do, what we could find people for. It was really, really difficult especially around the group mixing and a lot of people would say, oh, they're in my support bubble, they're in my support bubble. And I think, mm, okay, but there's only certain people that can have support bubbles. But it was really good to have something there and our inspectors and our supervision would regularly send stuff out. I think as cops, we had to take a bit of onus on ourselves as well and reassert that learning and just make sure that we've got that there just in case, you know, our decision-making ever gets called into question. You could say that, well, I'll have looked at this and this is a guidance that's been sent out to me instead of making decisions on a whim. So I found it really helpful. And as each restriction was lifted, the rules changed slightly. So you could exercise longer or you could meet people, you know, in larger groups. That changed as well. So they kept sending out regular updates. And you had, as police officers, the four E's approach. Engage, explain, encourage, and then finally enforce. And there were probably times when you wanted to spend time engaging with people and educating them, explaining the rules, but also there had to be that point where enforcement came in. 
How did you find the balance between this engagement and explaining side to actually getting to the point of enforcing the rules? If I recall, the four E's came in slightly later. So after the guidance on the fines, etc., the, the enforcement came out, I think it hit the press that number of forces handed out so many fines in, in a short period. So then they brought in this 4E approach, which kind of makes sense. I can understand. But you have to also remember that, that we at times deal with people that you can't encourage and you can't explain to them. They're very difficult to engage. So people need to understand that as well. I think it got better. It definitely got better as we went on. A lot of people you wouldn't even had to enforce because by the time you've, you've had an honest conversation with them, they would leave or they would, you know, do as you ask and they wouldn't have to enforce. Because if I recall, there was a slight relaxation over Christmas where you could meet for two or three days and then another lockdown came in around the 29th. I was on a level two carrier and we'd got a call to a house in Lytham. Lights inside, you could clearly hear music. And we knocked on the door for a little while and there was no answer. And I looked in through the window and there was just people dancing and drinking. And one of them actually saw me. And this chap turned around and said, oh, the police are here. And there's grown adults running, making a dash for it from the kitchen. It was, it, was, it, was, it was hilarious. We ended up going in and we were pulling people out of the bedrooms, the en suites, the cupboards. I tried so hard not to laugh because these are grown adults. What do you do with that then? So, for example, on that one, we explained to them why we're there, why this gathering of theirs is not allowed. And you met with resistance straight away. Oh, it's Christmas. Oh, uh, you know, my mum's on her own. Uh, she's in our support network. You know, we're in a support bubble. But this lady had about 25 people in a house. She actually ran upstairs and got changed into pyjamas and came down and said, oh, yawning. Oh, I'm just about to go to sleep. You added like a cocktail dress on five minutes ago. So, you know, why are all these people in, in your ensuite and in your garden? And the unfortunate thing there was you're trying to explain to her and then they just throw in excuses at you. And it gets to a point where you don't want it to turn into an argument. So, you you know, I had to bite my lip a little bit with the lady's son because he was just constantly having a go at me. Oh, I'm going to complain about you. You're rude. Well, I'm not being rude. My body cam's on. We can watch it back, you know. It's just the fact that what I'm telling you, you don't agree with or you don't like. I imagine it must be really, really difficult for you, especially the example you've just given. It's New Year's Eve. You know people want to enjoy themselves. But ultimately, there is still this virus. We are still under this legislation that says you cannot have people around at the house. There were certain areas that had higher numbers in relation to infection rates and others. And this one in particular, there was somebody from Manchester. There was somebody from, I think, Yorkshire. They'd come from all over the UK. There was kids there as well. So I think it was really disrespectful and quite selfish, really, to not only put the young kids at risk and the other people at risk, but to put us at risk as well. I think they forget that. In an ideal scenario, we'd ask people to leave, but, you know, they'd had a drink, they were driving, and it, it would be negligent of us to say, hey, hey go home. We, we couldn't yeah. do that. So in the end, uh, there was a few neighbours from down the street, they all left, but the, the immediate family that had had a drink and that travelled from Manchester and Yorkshire, they ended up staying. Kind of defeats the object almost. It, was, yeah. it put us in a really difficult situation because then you think, well, do we find the, the organiser of the party? And if we find her, then we, we should really be finding everybody else. It just puts you in that position, doesn't it, to make some really, really difficult decisions that whatever decisions you make, there's somebody not going to be happy with that decision. We spoke before we started chatting, didn't we? And you were telling me about somebody who came to see Blackpool Lights, I believe. 
there was a young lady that was driving around Blackpool and she looked lost in all honesty, hence why it was one of the reasons that I pulled her up. And she'd come all the way from Yorkshire to drop a Christmas card off for her grandma that lived in Freckleton or somewhere. But then she was found in the centre of Blackpool. And I remember pulling her over and saying, oh, I've, I've just run your car through. You're from Yorkshire. What, what are you doing here? Because at that point, there was no unnecessary travel. It was very repetitive trying to have to explain the rules. You know, lo and behold, she was, you know, really apologetic. And, and I didn't need to enforce because I've used the three E's and I've explained. And I didn't even really need to encourage her. She knew she'd done wrong. There was a lot of 3 a.m. exercises as well. People that you'd see on the street and you'd ask them what they're doing now. Oh, I'm exercising, mate. I'm exercising. Like, you don't look like you're exercising. You've got a pair of skinny jeans on and some Adidas gazelles and a can of Fosters, you know. It's just, you know, bending the rules to suit them. And you can't argue with those people. There's just no telling them. And, and, and they are that minority that think the rules don't apply to them. At Christmas time, we would have been in lockdown for almost a year. So people who are saying they don't know the rules, they don't know the rules. It's been in the news every single day, multiple times a day. It was on the sides of buses. It was in the news. It was in the newspaper. It was on TV. It was on the radio. It was everywhere. So for them to turn around and say, oh, I don't know the rules, mate. I just thought, oh, how selfish and, and, and disrespectful. I think at one point there was a real concern with the kids mingling that the young, you know, fit and healthy, they're not really that bothered about, but it's them picking up the infection and then passing it on to their parents, their grandparents, the, the elderly. I'm sure there was lots of positive interactions as well, because lots of people were out clapping, you know, on the Thursday evenings and they were doing different things in the community to support not just the NHS, but also emergency service workers. Were you able to experience any of that yourself? I remember driving past the mosque in Blackpool. I speak other languages, I speak Urdu and Hindi and Gujarati. And I remember speaking to this chap in Gujarati because he wanted a bit of understanding more around the rules and what an at-risk group is. And I remember pulling up the guidance and kind of going through it with him and like translating it for him, really. The majority of the people, you know, were sticking to the rules at the beginning where the rules were kind of thrown to us and then we were told, oh, hang on a minute, you need to do the four E's. It kind of worked in our favour, really. It was a lot better. Obviously, with this Gujarati family that I dealt with, they were, again, like myself, had an extended family. One of their elders was disabled and lived on their own. And then I explained, you know, that, yeah, you can have a support network. And then they were really grateful for that. And it was quite rewarding. Riz, some absolutely brilliant stories there. It really, really good as well. Just to hear from you as a frontline officer on your experience of policing during COVID. I'm joined now by Superintendent Hannah Wheeler, who led the policing operation to procure and supply PPE to frontline officers and staff working across UK policing from the very start of the coronavirus pandemic. And working with only a small team, a distribution supply hub was established to deliver over 80 million items to police forces. And that's an equivalent of more than two tonnes of PPE. The operation continues to this day, and I'm happy to say that Hannah has taken time out to be with us. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. We're talking about COVID and it seems strange to think 12 months since we first entered into lockdown, we are still here working from home remotely and chatting to each other as we are today remotely. So tell me a little bit more about Hannah Wheeler before COVID, your role within your local police force. I'm a Met officer and I've got 27 years service. I was on secondment to 
HMIC, FRS, and I was leading on vulnerability and mental health, so inspecting forces on how they deal with mental health. And it got to that point, sort of early March, where it became clear that we were kind of entering a period of, of time that was going to be substantially different. And MPOC, National Policing Coordination Centre, put a call into to HMIC, just said, if you've got any spare people. And I volunteered to sort of send my skills through to MPOC and was given the role of PPE lead nationally and then told to go home and not come back into London, not catch COVID and crack on, basically. Did you have a certain specification that you knew we required and were looking for? We didn't to start with. We worked out essentially a list of 10 key items that would be required by forces. So it was essentially surgical masks, but also higher grade masks like FFP3 masks, gloves, hand sanitizer, coveralls, goggles and aprons, which I know seem quite odd items to think would be really, really important for policing. But we were also working very closely with Public Health England and looking at the government advice that had come out. And their advice was that you will need these items in policing to make sure that you are as protected as possible. We had the potential to become super spreaders, going from call to call and, you know, and speaking to different people. So it was really, really important that the public were protected from us and what we may be spreading. We knew at that point that 70% of people that had COVID were asymptomatic. So we just didn't know who had it and who didn't. We were also procuring for Police Scotland, Police Service of Northern Ireland, all the overseas territories, BTP, the Ministry of Defence Police, Civil Nuclear Constabularies, National Crime Agency. So we really had to be inclusive of everyone within policing and make sure that we could equip them fully. One of the key sort of factors, I think, to the success of this was the setting up of a temporary national PPE hub. And this was actually the brainwave of my finance colleague in Thames Valley who said, we've actually got a space big enough if we clear it that could accommodate this. And it's actually quite central geographically for most forces to be able to get to on main sort of arterial routes. You could fly into a nearby airport if you needed to, to pick up this kit. You know, we weren't far from Heathrow. So if we needed to fly kit in and out, that was a consideration as well. This is a real logistical challenge, isn't it, for policing? How long was it from the point of your arrival did you actually start ordering equipment? We started ordering equipment the second day I arrived because forces were contacting MPOC saying, we can't source equipment anywhere. We can't source PPE. We absolutely need it. The first thing I did was identify where we could or source PPE from. We looked into where, you know, dental warehouses were and they would have sort of excess kit, you know, things like hand sanitizer, gloves and surgical masks on literally on the Friday evening, the day after I arrived, I managed to negotiate the full amount of kit that was in their warehouse. Although we're good at logistics, we're not the logistics experts. And actually the Royal Military Logistics Corps are. So I put a military request in for mutual aid and they arrived literally the next day and were working with my little team of six officers for a month, setting up the racking and the storage facility and the inventory and all the sort of flow charts and necessary logistics that was required for forces to be able to place orders with us and for us to then send the orders back out. 
Did you ever imagine that this is something you would be doing in your career, Hannah? No, not at all. And there were times when I was just sat at home, you can feel sort of a bit isolated. I had to control my imposter syndrome at certain points. I had a brilliant team. Our main mission was from the start to save lives. And that was just the clearest that I could be to them was that this would save lives if we could get PPE in sufficient amounts into forces. You know, it was something that we had to do um, to save lives. Sickness levels within policing. Were you able or have you since been able to measure the impact of the work that you and your team did in that supply of PPE and whether it had any impact on sickness levels within policing itself? We have had relatively low sickness levels throughout policing. At the start of this, we were sort of working to planning assumptions of maybe having up to a 40% abstraction rate in forces. At its height, we had 19, 20%. And actually, currently, the sickness rate is at 4% nationally, which is, I think, lower than pre-pandemic levels. So what we have discovered is that all the enhanced sort of infection prevention control measures that we've been undertaking as part of COVID have actually made us a lot healthier generally. So that working from home element as well has helped. People haven't been getting, you know, ill with colds and things and passing them around because they've been sanitising and wearing masks and gloves. It's quite obvious that the work that you and your team put together in everything that you've done has been massively appreciated and has impacted so positively on the way that we've been able to continue to go out and do the job of serving the public and protecting those who need protecting most. They have been absolutely fantastic. I can't extol their virtues enough, to be honest. They've been marvellous. We've been a group of strangers brought together in an emergency and they've just got stuck in and got on with it. So wrote a submission for the Public Sector Transformation Awards and the team won a certificate of excellence for transformational team. So we had a kind of virtual certification ceremony. They just really deserved it. They deserve huge acknowledgement from policing, essentially. How did you feel when you found out you were going to get a Queen's Police Medal for this work? I was shocked, very, very humbled because... It's not just been me, it's been a massive team effort. What has been the personal impact of the last 12 months on you? Well, I've gone (laughs) grey. So I was very relieved when the hairdressers opened up. I've learnt an enormous amount. I've worked with people that I wouldn't previously have been given the opportunity to work with. Actually, the majority of the people I work with are police staff who are, in my view, some of the unsung heroes in policing. Their skills and knowledge are second to none. Hannah, thank you so much for speaking to us. It really has been an eye-opener. I just want to say thank you to you and your team. It sounds like, and it is evident, that you have done an absolutely amazing job. Getting the policing response right every time during a global health pandemic was always going to be a real challenge. Owen Weatherall is the strategic lead for the National Police Coordination Centre and has agreed to help me try and unpack some of that. Owen spent 26 years in Hertfordshire Constabulary in a variety of roles in his own force and nationally on behalf of others. Owen, thank you very much for joining us today. We've 
already spoken to a number of people who have played a vital role in the policing response to COVID-19, from frontline officers and staff right through to those leading the strategic response, such as yourself. But I suppose we should start at the beginning for you, as we have done for others. How did you find yourself in the National Police Coordination Centre leading on this work? The National Police Coordination Centre, as its name suggests, is a place for coordinating functions across policing. But it traditionally does that in the arena of operational response, so that the movement of officers and assets around the country for large events, that's its bread and butter business. But through the back end of 2019, when the general election was called, and the atmosphere at the time around the EU exit, we lent in to provide a slightly different function to the one that we normally would do around some of the coordination nationally between forces and to act as a conduit between government and forces and vice versa. And we found that worked really well. That's its origin, really. So when COVID unfolded, we found that was a tried and tested approach that we'd used very recently. There was confidence from forces and from government in, in that style of approach and that style of coordination. And it was a logical fit, really. And as we saw COVID become more and more of a global concern, it was logical that we performed a similar function, but on a much more scaled up basis. What was the intention of the policing operation from the national perspective? What were your main priorities and the key thought process in how you approach this? I think our first and foremost was protection of life. That is always at the forefront of our minds in policing terms. And this brought that home in a way and at a scale that we had never seen previously. So the prospect for significant deaths arising from the virus meant it was really clear we were going to have a role to play here. So having to work out how can we do that effectively, but most importantly, consistently. It's that consistency piece, which is what the Oppression Teller response and the, and the coordination centrally has really been seeking to achieve, that consistent approach as far as possible across the country so that it delivers the desired intent, it supports the overarching ambition from government, and it makes sure as well that the public can have confidence and a clear understanding of what we're seeking to do, why we're seeking to do it, and how we will do it. Of course, there'll be some mistakes made, but actually looking back now, I think we've got that balance about right. The consistency has been there. We've really interfered with people's liberties over the last year or so in a very deliberate way from government and from legislation. And you've got to be able to explain that to people. People need to understand why we're doing what we're doing and how we're going to do it. One of the ways to keep people safe and remind them of their own actions, which could help reduce the spread of the virus, was when you introduced what is now known as the four E's. So could you explain this a little bit more from your perspective? Why was this introduced? Ordinarily, legislation would take many, many months and sometimes years to bring to a situation where it comes into practice. And we would then have time to consider the, the right guidance that goes with that and to communicate that with the public. So everybody knows what that legislation is there to do. That's the normal way of doing things. We've had completely the opposite here out of necessity. There's been a need to bring in different measures very, very quickly, sometimes in a matter of hours. New regulations have been effected in most cases within in a matter of two or three days. And with that then comes a need to communicate that to both our officers that need to work with it and the public. So we felt it was really critical from the outset to have a guiding set of principles to work with. 
success for us in a policing context looks like actually encouraging people to follow the regulations and do the things that the government is asking it to do. To do that, what we need to do is engage with people. We need to explain what those regulations are to make sure they understand them and to encourage them to follow them. If we can do that, that's a successful outcome for me. If we get to the realms of issuing a ticket, that's because somebody's not doing what we're asking them to do or what the regulations require them to do. And we want to avoid that if we really can. That's a failed outcome in my view. Ideally, we want people to do what the regulations require of them because that's how we can keep people safe. That's how we can keep them safe. And that's how we can mitigate the loss of life. And so the 4 E's approach is very much enshrined in trying to protect people's health. And I think you pick up on a really, really good point there. Because when we hear about policing the pandemic, we can often be drawn to highlighting some of the more negative stories that we've seen and heard. An example of this is where some members of the public, while outdoors, have been stopped, they've been challenged, and sometimes maybe even fined by the police. And this can come across as a negative news story. The balance between engagement with the public or education of what they should be doing and this line of enforcement by police must have been a real challenge for you. Yeah, I mean, it's been a challenge for me. I think it's been a challenge for everybody, not least of which are the public trying to understand changing regulations because at different stages, there have been some quite complex regulations in place, different in different parts of the country at different times. That of itself creates some confusion. We've had examples of people who haven't realised they're in an area where different regulations apply. So that engagement is really important. But equally, it's, it's important to understand that the challenge for the officers themselves, this is an arena they're not used to operating in. And with regulations that they don't have the same degree of training and guidance in, in the way that we would train people normally for their day-to-day policing duties. And while all this was ongoing, were there any checks and balances in place within the National Police Coordination Centre that you could start to test ideas with or to gauge how reactions might be with the public dependent upon some of the issues or challenges that you were facing? We took the decision fairly early on that we would benefit from an independent ethics committee. So we have 12 people now that are completely independent of policing who advise us. There are academics, there are clergy, there are lawyers. There are very mixed demographic background too, which is reflective of the country. And they have been able to offer some really valuable advice throughout this and to assist us to formulate views, to shape some of our messaging and just to kick around ideas sometimes around either emerging challenges, emerging legislation. That's been a huge benefit to us and it really has helped us to make sure that we're seeing it from a different perspective to get that public perspective as well. Have you got any example that you can share with me today about how this group helped to shape the policing perspective of this pandemic? The debate around access to vaccinations, and, and there were some very competing conversations around should policing and other frontline workers be prioritised for vaccination or not? Understanding the, the desire from staff at a frontline perspective, I completely understand why they would want to, but on the other hand, understanding the rationale behind the prioritisation cohorts and the approach that's being taken by the government, there was a conflict there. We don't want to be seen to be taking vaccinations that need to be prior to somebody who's perhaps, from a health perspective, more at risk, but at the same time, we want to keep the workforce healthy and able to support the public and protect the public. So you can see the conflict that was there. That was a conversation we revisited several times. The one thing they've been really clear about 
repeatedly through every conversation is the value of that four-week approach and not losing sight of that. They really regard that as one of the success stories of the policing navigation of the COVID response. That is very much a core part of every set of guidance because we want to keep that message alive and make sure that is the underpinning foundation that supports our approach. Policing is still, as we speak, responding to a health crisis and will continue to do so for some time, I suspect. How do we take lessons from this as an organisation? And what steps have we taken to learn from this already? One of the very deliberate decisions I took was to set up a dedicated learning and reform work strand so that we were picking up those lessons learned along the way and recognising also that on the other side of COVID, when we eventually came out of it, a number of things would probably need to look quite different. Things naturally evolve. Policing and, and businesses always are evolving. If we could pick up the learning along the way, we would put ourselves in a much better position to actually come out of that and make the right decisions. So that work strand has been very active throughout, um, but particularly so in the last few months. At the same time, we've also been able to tap into some academic expertise that's been offered to us and some survey expertise as well along the way. So there are a range of different pieces of work which have come together to help capture that global picture. And this isn't just about policing, this is about how we operate in conjunction with our partners in different force areas. It's about how we operate across different cross-sector boundaries at a national level and with government. There is an awful lot here that we can learn, whether that's for another pandemic, if there is ever another one, and I hope there isn't. But, you know, we've only got to look at how quickly this one got traction. It's shown us that we can have confidence in our staff being able to work remotely and still deliver the business. That necessarily challenges the, some of our working principles around working environments. Do we need to deliver services in quite the same way? We're already seeing now examples of organisations restructuring their approach to who needs to be actually in the office and, and how often. As someone who's been in the middle of all of this yourself, what have you learned personally? How has COVID-19 impacted or change you? Unlike some of the other challenges that we deal with in policing, this has touched just about everybody in some shape or form. You know, I've lost a relative to COVID. Most of my colleagues have either had COVID or similarly know somebody who has had it badly or somebody who has died from it. This touches us all personally in a way that most other types of policing response don't tend to. It's also shown me what, as a collective as police officers and, and as a nation we can achieve when we're under pressure when we need to we pull together and I'm really proud of that I'm proud of what we've done as a country I'm proud of what we've done as a police service I'm proud of what we've done from the centre to support that collective effort it just reminds me why, why did I join the police service to start with really which was to try and make a difference and I, I will look back when I retire and think this was my defining moment in policing and I think I actually did make a difference If you had one single piece of advice to any future policing leader who may listen back to this at some point what's the one piece of advice that you would give them so from a leadership perspective the thing that's been most palpable throughout all of this it is the pressure you are under when you've got such a significant challenge and there is a need to do something and to do it quickly and the thing that i have often deferred to through that is my own sense of purpose and right and wrong what's the right thing to do what's the right reason to do it and seeking out the counsel of your peers and your colleagues around you because they're human beings at the end of the day they are colleagues they are people equally affected by something like this 
This is too big an issue to get wrong. And it's not the sort of thing that you can approach on your own. It's a team effort. And sometimes your thinking as a leader needs to be a team effort too, because you get better outcomes and better decision making as a consequence. So draw on the expertise and knowledge and the counsel from those around you and just have confidence. Nicole Higgins is the Accreditation Registrar in the Crime and Criminal Justice Faculty here at the College of Policing. During the COVID-19 pandemic, I had the pleasure of working with Nicole to support the College's work with partners to deliver products to frontline officers, which would both support them in applying the new legislation and guidance on the front line, but also to find evidence of good practice which could be scaled up across the country to help our communities stay safe and for policing to continue supporting their communities effectively. I'm pleased to say Nicole joins me now. Could you tell me about your role at the College of Policing? Yeah, my day job at the College of Policing is that I am the Accreditation and Licensing Registrar for High Risk Policing. I actually volunteered quite early on within the first week of the pandemic to take on the lead for COVID advice and standards. Basically, what I was doing was I was leading the college response to the challenges faced by the pandemic. We didn't have a clue what we were about to let ourselves in for, did we really? The group started looking at legislation, interpreting that, and they expanded quite a bit into looking at other sorts of advice to help the police officers face the challenges that they were meeting on the street every day. Excellent. And we spoke earlier in the episode to a police officer, Riz Dala, from Blackpool, and he was talking about having some documents on his work phone that he was able to quickly refer to. Is this the type of guidance that you're able to produce for police officers and staff? Yes, I mean, we're not talking about sort of complicated, long research pieces of guidance. What we were talking about was operational briefings, because the officers that went out on the street, some of them would wake up in the morning to find that legislation had changed. What we were trying to do was to produce very simple, short pages of advice in a briefing that would interpret the law. It would tell them what their powers were and it would tell them what they could do to enforce those powers. So it was very much to the moment um, and up-to-date information for them. And were there quite a few changes during that time? Let's just take the first year of the pandemic from March to March. We're talking about England and Wales, and of course the legislation in Wales was different, so everything we did was doubled. In total, we had about 117 changes in legislation. There were substantial changes because they weren't just changes to the restrictions, they were changes within local areas. And there were changes to things like travel regulations, What did a typical week look like, particularly at the beginning where we had so much uncertainty, so many changes and people dealing with things that they'd never dealt with before? What would a week look like for you and the team? It was chaotic at the beginning. A typical week really can't be explained. If I put it in general terms, we had a very small core team. That team would meet twice a week or more if necessary. We'd review what was coming in information from the Home Office about what we could be expecting. We'd also have a look at what was in the pipeline and what our deadlines were with the legislation that was coming in. We'd be looking at areas where police officers were reporting to us that they were facing challenges, for example, with domestic abuse or even like interviewing suspects, which you could no longer do face to face. So there was a whole spectrum of areas that were new to police officers and confusing. 
So we'd look at that twice a week. We'd look at the workload. We'd see how many people we could pull in. And then we would literally work to the deadline that we were given. That could have been working through the night on occasion. It often meant working during the weekends. It was not a simple process just to interpret legislation. So what were the biggest challenges that you would say in that process itself that was important for you as a team to ensure that you got right every time? To me, the biggest challenge, because everything was being changed so quickly, the public were often learning about these things through the Downing Street briefings or in the press, was to make police officers clear what was actually in legislation and what was government guidance. And I think some of the issues we had early on, and it, it was so much to deal with, I'm not surprised that there were a few issues, was you know police officers trying to enforce government guidance. And by that, I mean something like the 2.5 metre rule. You see, in England, that was just in guidance. It wasn't in law. So I think a lot of what we had to do with officers was to make that clear. And that's why we had so much engagement with the Home Office just before the guidance was issued, just to make sure that we had got that absolutely right. Early on, we produced single one-pages that explained exactly what was guidance and what was in law. We also gave some sort of advice to officers as how to deal with the guidance, you know, using the four E's because they couldn't obviously go as far as enforcing it. And the environment in which those changes came through, as the changes were being made by the government, we were hearing about those at around the same time, whereby the announcements were made, and then we would have to start to issue that guidance almost immediately to police officers and staff within policing to ensure that they were engaging and explaining the right legislation or the rules that were in place for that period of time. Is that fair to say? In fairness to government and the NPCC, we all work very, very closely together. The Home Office were not the ones that were actually drafting the legislation, so they would give us as much notice as they could. That could be sort of 48 hours, anything down to 12 hours. We might know what was coming in terms of what the government's intent for the legislation was, but there was no way we could write guidance on that. We needed to be absolutely accurate. We needed to tell them what their powers were, what the restrictions were in their area. And don't forget, England and Wales, we were policing a border, so we were having to do additional stuff just for the people who were acting either side of the border. The aim was to get that out before the first shift went on duty, and that did mean that we were working through the night to try and achieve that. Let's talk through an announcement being made around a new piece of legislation and that then passing through Parliament, coming into our team and then ultimately going into force and coming into power. What did that look like from your perspective? We wouldn't necessarily have had the legislation passed through Parliament because a lot of it was secondary legislation that was debated afterwards. So we would get a heads up from the Home Office or the Welsh Office on what was coming through. Very often we would be told what the intention of that was. So then we would review whether or not we needed a new briefing or whether we could amend an existing briefing. We would then also be talking to the National Police Chiefs Council about this change in legislation. What's the kind of way that we want to put the message across. So we'd be talking about that. We would get the draft legislation, as I say, sort of 48 to 12 hours before it was actually laid. But because it was so important that we didn't get it wrong, one or two mistakes and the whole legitimacy of policing was at question. 
So we would put it through our own legal panel. We'd put it through our own approvals process. Things that would normally take weeks, if not months, were getting done in hours. So it would go through a panel of police lawyers, either in England or in Wales, would then have to go through back to the Home Office so that they could have a look at what the feel of the messaging was and whether that was in line with the government intention. And if it was new and controversial, it would then have to go to number 10. We were literally pushing this through all the channels of the college, the MPCC, and then onto government before it could go out to police officers. Just to be clear here, Nicole, we're not just talking about COVID regulation or legislation itself, because there were so many other documents that passed through your team that were designed to help and support police officers and staff during the pandemic, all around maybe the different ways in which they could do their job on a daily basis that was now being impacted by COVID-19. And all the time, we have a team that are trying to deliver this new guidance and help and support to officers, haven't we? We have a couple of approaches to that. We have a lot of what we call policing standards managers here at the College of Policing. They came to us with ideas, for example, how to breathalyze somebody during a pandemic. But we also came back with things that had been sort of come back to us through officers or through the MPCC. So we put out a lot of guidance on PPE, the personal protective equipment and how to wear that. We put out some guidance for them in terms of what officers should do in terms of wearing face coverings. We looked at specific issues that were coming up, holiday periods, religious ones, things that are really important to people like Eid or Easter. And we wanted police officers to you know, have some sort of sympathy, but still maintain the law. So again, we put out some guidance around the four E's on how to deal with that. And where would police officers and staff find all this information? What was being done to ensure that they got access to whatever it was that they needed? The team set up what we call the COVID hub on our public facing website. So that was accessible to all police officers. And on the hub is where we kept all of that information. Pretty quickly into the pandemic, we realised that there could be a better solution to this. And so the web team worked tirelessly, actually, over a very short period of time to update it so that it became a sort of more interactive, more intuitive website that people could sort of put in what their problem was and then it would come up with the answer rather than having to scroll through lots of legislation. So it was a very user-friendly, mobile-friendly, quick reference to current legislation and guidance. Fantastic. And there's probably so much more we could cover about all the work that um, you and the whole of your team, which was a whole collaborative team, went into to ensure that the police officers and staff got that help and support. But for me, Nicole, I want to thank you so much for joining us and giving us that really interesting insight into some of the challenging dynamics of making sure that the right information is getting out there to police officers and staff and making sure that they get that at the right time as well. And I'm sure people will really appreciate hearing what was actually going on from behind the scenes. So thank you. Not a problem, Rob. Thank you very much. Lovely talking to you. And that is all we have time for today, folks. Thanks for joining me. If you'd like to find out more about how police tackled the pandemic and the support that's been raised in today's episode, then please check out the links in the show notes. You can also find us by visiting the official College of Policing website, college.police.uk. Or you can follow us on Twitter, at College of Police. But for now, I hope you stay safe and I will see you all soon.